Welcome once again to Grace Fellowship Church. I am so grateful for our worship team. You don't need beautiful voices and incredible instrumentation to worship the Lord, but it sure is a delight, isn't it? Uh, likewise, you don't need to have a Bible or an outline or a pen in front of you, but I highly recommend that you have those things. So if you need any of those things and do not have them, please stick your hand up and Vadim will jump right up and bring you all those things. So we got a few hands. <clears throat> it may be that someday your entire fate will come down to what is declared when accompanied by a singular sound. That got your attention, didn't it? Should the judgment be that you are guilty, then it's over. It's over. Depending on when and where you live, where you live your life may be functionally over. You, you, you may be fined a sum that you can never repay, you may be uh, forced to spend the remainder of your days locked away in a prison. In some cases, you might even be put to death. Or the judgment instead may be the most wonderful words that, that an accused person could possibly hear. Not guilty. Get used to hearing that sound. We'll be using it today. <laughs> With those words, not guilty, you are cleared of wrongdoing. You are given your life back. You are free to go, and your accusers are put to shame. This is why justice matters, friends. This is why people dedicate so much of their lives, perhaps their entire lives, to seeing justice done. This is why people protest when they see that justice is not done. It is because there is a very, very great deal of power wielded by this sound and by the judgment that accompanies it this morning friends we're going to be uh, continuing in our study of the book of acts and we'll be looking in acts 23 we'll be looking justice squarely in the eyes and what we will see is that in the case of paul of tarsus the pharisee turned christian missionary the defendant will be found not guilty And we will see that our entire fates rest on that verdict. So let me pray for us, and then we're going to dive into today's text. God, we stand before you as those who are not innocent uh, in and of ourselves, but we are found innocent by the blood of Christ. Uh, God, as we explore how that is possible and how that message even reached us through Paul, we pray that you would open our eyes to see what your word would have us see. Would it encourage our souls? Would it, would it uh, give us greater cause to rejoice in Christ, to, to look to you, uh, just as we sung this morning, and to find great hope and joy in you? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you uh, are joining us uh, here in the middle of our series, uh, really towards the end of our series in the book of Acts, let me give you a little context of how we got to where we did this morning. So we already mentioned this guy, Paul of Tarsus. Uh, he is a former enemy of Christianity, but since he encountered the resurrected Jesus Christ, it changed everything. And Paul is now on a mission from the Lord Jesus to spread his truth to both Jews and Gentiles who are non-Jews, everybody else. 
in the course of accomplishing that mission, Paul, uh, Paul finds himself in Jerusalem, which is the center of Jewish, Jewish religious life. And despite making every possible effort to show that he is in fact not anti-Jewish, but rather demonstrating that Jesus is the fulfillment of all things Jewish, uh, Paul is nevertheless accused and attacked by a Jewish mob who has no rational cause or explanation for what they do. In the midst of that chaos, a Roman tribune, that's a high-ranking military officer, comes in with his men to break up the mob and rescue Paul. And all of that is well-documented for us by our uh, Luke, our author, who wrote Acts in Acts chapter 21. So then, beaten and bruised, Paul makes his initial defense before that mob, though that goes about as well as you might imagine. Mobs are not known for their careful rationale. And as soon as Paul gets to the part in his story about Jesus sending him to the Gentiles, remember that's the non-Jewish people, and here he is in the center of Jewish religious life, the mob goes nuts again and demands that Paul be killed. The Roman tribune figures that, goodness, this guy must have done something wrong, and so he very nearly has Paul flogged until he learns that Paul is in fact a Roman citizen and thus, gasp, is is. Uh, uh, is able to have, should be entitled to a fair, actual trial, not this mob lynching that was trying to take place. And so we pick up in our text in the final verse of Acts chapter 22, and we'll be moving into Acts chapter 23. If you have a church Bible, we are on page 877, starting at Acts 22, verse 30. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he, Paul, was being accused by the Jews, he, the the tribune, unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest, Ananias, commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. Let's pause right there. 
So our text starts here with this tribune, this Roman military officer, commanding the Jewish Sanhedrin, the high court of the Jews, to meet together and to conduct a trial for Paul. Now, we, we aren't told how the Jews felt about being commanded by the Romans to go do something. Um, but given that they were looking for a reason to condemn Paul and stop the spread of his message anyway, it's likely that they were willing to overlook the assertion of power by the occupying force in their territory. And sure enough, it doesn't take very long for Ananias, the the high priest overseeing these so-called proceedings, to lash out at Paul. Paul is, in fact, only one sentence in when, when Ananias commands that Paul be struck. Why? Why did, what was it about Paul's words here that caused that response? Well, we're, we're not actually told, which is frustrating for Bible nerds like me. And, and, and certainly there are other places in Scripture, like, like such as in the Psalms, when men claim their guiltlessness before God and they are uncondemned for that response. So what, what, what Paul said here is it, it's not clear why he was struck. Perhaps Ananias had already determined Paul's guilt, and so for Paul to say, I'm not guilty, was, was an offense in and of itself. That's not how trials are supposed to work, but there it is. Now, what happens next has made more than a few people uncomfortable over the past 2,000 years of this account being circulated. And we can see why, right? It sure seems like Paul who is well familiar with suffering and often does so while singing, of all things, seems to uncharacteristically lose control in this instance, doesn't it? Look at verse 3 again. Paul said to him, Ananias, the high priest, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Whoa, there's, there's some heat behind those words. So so what's going on here? Did Paul simply reach a breaking point? He's been suffering for a long time now in our story. Was, was this, or, or maybe there was just this being struck on the mouth? Like if you've ever been punched in the mouth, that really, really hurts. Uh, this isn't, this isn't just like someone shoving you or offending you. This, this is a physical pain. Was it so painful that Paul sees red and lashes out in return? I don't think so. And I want to tell you why. First, Paul doesn't say, I'm going to strike you back. Just, just wait till these chains are off of me. I'm going to come flying at you. You know, hold me back. You know, that type of thing. Like, that, that's, that's not what he's saying. No, he says, God is going to strike you. Paul appears to be, uh, appeals to the ultimate judge here, not to his own judgments. Second, he's condemning the hypocrisy more than he's condemning the abuse itself. Paul is saying, you're violating the law to supposedly uphold the law. And remember, here he's referring to God's law, not the Roman law or how we might think about federal law or state law uh, or whatever. Uh, Again, Paul is appealing to the ultimate judge, God himself, not to his own judgments. And finally, look at how Paul responds when someone points out that what he just said, he said to the high priest. He says, I didn't know, brothers, that he was the high priest. And then he quoted Exodus 22, 28 to show that he recognizes his wrongdoing. I ought not to say such things. You are right. I confess. I'm sorry. So rather than this being an illustration of Paul's lack of self-control, I think this brief exchange is actually an evidence of Paul's guiltlessness. In the face of injustice. That is, Luke is saying to us, 
to his readers, look, Paul is not ultimately concerned with his own well-being. He's actually concerned with real justice. And is that not what we should all want? Isn't that, isn't that what you, O oh reader of this account, want to see done? Real justice. Who here, Luke is, is asking us, who here in this exchange is actually concerned with justice? It's, it's not his accusers, right? They're, they're beating a man who is uncondemned. Okay, and so the trial continues. And it does so by Paul very wisely discerning the makeup of the council and by identifying himself as a Pharisee and declaring it is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Okay, so those who have been with us for a little while here, who have been following along in the book of Acts, we should probably at least ask ourselves for a moment, is that really true? Is that, is that really the reason you're on trial, Paul? Because isn't it actually the case that Paul is on trial because a mob thought he brought a Gentile into the temple back in Acts 21? Or isn't it actually the case that Paul is on trial because that same mob went berserk when Paul says that Jesus had sent him to the Gentiles? How can Paul say this is about the resurrection? That doesn't, that doesn't at, at first appear to be the case at all. Isn't he just playing politics with the Sanhedrin, trying, trying to turn the Pharisees against the Sadducees? And doesn't Luke tell us that? Well, well, friends, it was the Lord Jesus himself who said these words in Matthew 10. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. Is that not what Paul is doing here? Is it not possible to be completely innocent and yet to be wise as well, especially when you're in the context of injustice? In a place where even saying, my conscience is clear, gets you punched in the face. Wisdom is called for in those situations. <laughs> Listen, Paul is very likely asking himself, because this, is, this has been his, his consuming purpose. Paul is asking himself, how can I bear witness to the Gentiles? That's his mission. That's what Jesus sent him to do. That's his consuming interest. So given that question that's in his mind, might he not then simply recall the next words of Jesus in that same account in Matthew 10? Here's what he says right after Jesus says to be wise and innocent. Listen, beware of men. Why? For they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. Why? Listen, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. And when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. That's what Jesus said. That's what Paul would know. So I don't think this is Paul losing control, friends. I think this is Paul accomplishing his mission. I think this is the Spirit of God speaking through him so that he can proceed with his mission. In any case, the results here are incredible. The Sadducees predictably can't stand the idea that Paul is on trial because of a resurrection that they don't believe in. 
And the Pharisees, predictably, can't stand the idea that the Sadducees can't stand the idea. And so just before this so-called hearing dissolves into the same chaos of the previous mob, notice the judgment recorded for us by the Pharisees found halfway through verse 9. Here's what they say. We find nothing wrong in this man. In other words, from a Jewish perspective, Paul is not guilty. And so with that, the tribune rescues Paul yet again from a crazed and violent mob and brings him safely into the Roman barracks. But that tribune, of course, still has a problem. What will he do with this guiltless man who he must now protect? This is a guiltless Roman citizen. He, he called this, this convention to meet to determine his, his guilt or his, his innocence. They said, we find no guilt. And now he's got an innocent guy that a whole mob is trying to kill. That's a problem. And Paul, of course, still has a problem too. How will he accomplish his God-given mission to reach the Gentiles if he's locked away in a fort? And the Jews, of course, still have a problem. How can they stop this guy, Paul, period? Now, thankfully, God does not share any of these problems. And he is about to intervene to deal with each of them. Let's read the rest of our text for today. Picking up again in verse 11 of chapter 23. The following night, the Lord stood by him, Paul, and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and the elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now, the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. And so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, what is it you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect, Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was, uh, about, was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed 
by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And it was when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go with him. And when they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. This account begins, what we just read, with a, with a wonderfully appropriate intervention by the Lord Jesus himself. And did you catch the ironic twist? Okay? Remember, two days ago, Paul was nearly torn to pieces by a mob because he said that Jesus sent him to the Gentiles. Right? Then one day ago, Paul was nearly torn to pieces by the Sadducees who insisted that there is no resurrection. Here, the resurrected one appears to Paul and says, go to the Gentiles. I I love the Bible. It's so sassy. (laughs) Like Paul just like jabs them both in the eye in one statement. Okay. Anyway, here in verse 11, we see the the pattern continuing uh, of Christ's commission for Paul to reach the nations. And, And it sets up the story for us for the rest of the book of Acts. Here's what I mean. Back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus told all his disciples that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Go out there, right? Then in Acts, jumping way ahead, Acts 18, verse 9, Jesus appeared to Paul in Corinth in the midst of much persecution and in public opposition to Christianity. And he says this, do not be afraid. But go on speaking and do not be silent. Why? For I am with you and no one will attack you. For I am many people in this city, this Gentile city, who are my people. And in Acts 22, Paul relates how Jesus had told Paul that he would not be accepted in Jerusalem. And so Jesus was sending Paul to the Gentiles. And here, now, Jesus clarifies the mission still further. You're going to Rome itself, to the very heart of the, of the Roman Empire, to, to the center of the world. But, but how would that happen? As it turns out, friends, our God is very creative. And so, sometimes, it would seem, world-changing missions begin when your enemies conspire together to kill you. Here's your application for today. <laughs> It wasn't my idea. It's right, it's right there. It tur- and it turned out to be a great one. See, in, in stark contrast to verse 11, where Jesus uh, stands by Paul to encourage him, in verses uh, 12 and 13, immediately thereafter, we're told that 40 people will neither, neither eat nor drink till they've killed him. Very different kinds of perspectives on Paul. But I'll give them this. These conspirators are at least honest and above board in their mission. Right? 
Because in verse 14, we see that they went straight to the chief priests and the elders. You know, the most religious people in the most religious city in the world. And they said, hey guys, listen, we've decided we'd rather die of thirst than let this guy live. You guys cool with that? To which these extremely wise and justice-minded followers of God say, totally, that's an awesome idea. (laughs) Hey, hey, maybe we could even help out. You know, let's go to the tribune. And we'll tell him, let, we really care about justice. Let's examine him more closely. Yeah. And then, and then, you know, when, when that happens, we'll kill him. You guys can kill him. And they're all like, yeah, 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 that's great. And then, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll kill him. That's totally fine and acceptable thing to do before God. Like, just like striking someone for saying they're guiltless. Good talk, guys. Thanks. I like this plan. That, that's, that's functionally what is recorded for us there. And it's crazy, right? This should not happen. But here's the thing. It should have worked. It totally should have worked. Here's the math, okay? 40 people plus the leading Jewish officials plus a Roman tribune who already wanted the Jews to figure this out themselves equals one dead missionary. Simple math. This should have worked. In fact, they they only forgot to account for one minor little detail. Jesus already said, you're going to Rome. And so it's going to happen, guys, no matter what. Even if he's got to use a little boy to do it. Isn't that remarkable? Simply picture the audacity and the awkwardness of the rest of this chapter. In God's complete and utter, utter, utter providence... And for no other reason, it just so happens that Paul's sister's kid somehow gets wind of this conspiracy. No idea how, but he does. And then this kid somehow gets into a Roman barracks to talk to Paul. No idea how, but he does. And then this kid somehow gets an audience with the tribune... This high-ranking military guy, because Paul tells him to. No idea how, but he does. And can't you just picture, okay, this military general guy, probably like wearing armor, having a sword strapped on, he's got a helmet, probably some medals and stuff. Like he's really, he's really up there and he's holding the hand of a little boy and he like gets down on one knee and, and, and just says, what do you have to tell me? It's not your stereotype military dude, right? It's not, it's not what you picture happening here. You, you, what should have happened is this kid walked in to get him out of here or kill him or something. Little kid in my office here. This, this never should have happened. And I have no idea how it did. But it did. Like if this were a movie script, if Hollywood made this, everybody would be crying foul. It would be like, come on. You guys told none of this is realistic. This never could happen. And yet, here it is. And as a result of this meeting between this high-ranking Roman military guy and this little boy, the tribune calls two centurions. Okay, that word centurion, you see the word century in there, a hundred years. Each one of these guys has a hundred guys reporting to him. Okay? And so, these two centurions... And their 200 soldiers and 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen take Paul riding on his own horse all the way to Caesarea. 
Okay. <laughs> now, now, Caesarea is still a long way from Rome. But guys, picture this scene. All right? This is not how you transport a guilty man. Just think of the incredible expense of moving all of those troops by night. Okay, a lot of them had to wake up and go do this work. This is, this is nearly 500 people across a 60-mile journey. Guilty men do not get to spend military fortunes. I shouldn't have to tell you that, but maybe you guys aren't in the military. Maybe you don't know. But that's, that's just not a normal thing. No sane observer would have watched this procession and said, Oh man, that guy's totally guilty. Look at him riding on that steed with a whole military escort. No. What would they, if, if you were just some guy walking along the road and you saw this at night, what would you say? That guy is, a, is some kind of Roman hero. Look how they're treating him. Man, he must be really, really important. I wonder what he has to say. Let's listen to him. This is an honor guard, guys. That's what this is. And in case that's not enough, the tribune, who we, after three chapters now, we finally learn his name. He's just been called the tribune all this time. His name is Claudius Lysias. Hi, Claudius. He tells us in his letter to Felix what his judgment is in his own words. Here it is in verse 20, uh, yeah, 29. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but he was charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. In other words, in the eyes of Rome, Paul is not guilty. And sure enough, when Felix receives Paul, the message is received loud and clear. Paul isn't tossed in some dark, dank prison to rot away. No. According to verse 35, Paul is guarded in Herod's praetorium until he can receive an actual, fair Roman trial. And spoiler alert, for the rest of the book of Acts... There's just a few chapters left, but for the rest of the book, on the way to Rome, Paul is going to be shown again and again and again to be not guilty. So what do we do with all this? What does this mean for the original audience, and what does it mean for us? Well, the first audience to consider here, perhaps, is is Caesar. Soon... Paul is going to wind up standing before the supreme Roman court of Caesar himself. And it is very likely that, that the accounts of the, of the books of, of Luke and Acts were, were written as Paul's defense. So what should be crystal clear from this account is that from the Jews, which is represented by the Pharisees, it's point one on your outline, and from Roman officials, as, as represented by that high-ranking uh, uh, tribune Claudius Lysias, point two on your outline, It should be very clear to Caesar when he reads these accounts that Paul is not guilty. And so implicitly, the Jews and the Romans, everyone involved in this, is saying, Caesar, it would would behoove you, it would be wise to render that same judgment. But our audience here is is not just Caesar. It's it's also, and in, in fact, more clearly, more explicitly, Theophilus, the man to whom both Luke and Acts are dedicated. At the beginning of each book, you'll find his name. 
And, and Luke tells us in, that, that those accounts were written according to Luke 1 verse 4, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So what, what has Theophilus been taught? Well, as we've studied Acts, we've summarized Luke's message this way. God's kingdom grows against all odds into the likeness of the resurrected Christ. So how would Theophilus, here in today's text, see God's kingdom growing against all odds into the likeness of the resurrected Christ? Well, we've already talked a bit about that against all odds part. <laughs> like, this, this really shouldn't have happened. The, the odds were totally stacked against this guy, and yet, here's Paul on your doorstep, Caesar. Uh, you know, he, here he is, Theophilus. He, he, he made it to Rome. But what does it mean to, to see the kingdom growing into the likeness of the resurrected Christ? There is so much I could say here, so much that we could, we could explore to see what that means. I'll give you just one example. Consider uh, the book of John, chapter 18. In that account, Jesus is being questioned by the high priest, and after Jesus gave a reasonable reply, we read this. One of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Similarly, just after that account, Jesus is sent from one ruler to another, each one questioning him. He's sent from Annas the high priest to Caiaphas to Pilate to Herod to Pilate. And not one of them, not a single person, found any cause for imprisonment or death. And they just kept saying that over and over and over again. This guy is not guilty. That sounds really familiar, doesn't it? Paul's case here, friends, mirrors that of his Lord and Savior. From slaps in the face to being sent from ruler to ruler to ruler, none of whom thinks he's done anything wrong. That is, we see God's kingdom growing against all odds as Paul images the likeness of the resurrected Christ. And both of those men are not guilty. The messages, friends, are trustworthy because the messengers are trustworthy. And, and our hope in Jesus, this hope and resurrection that, that Paul spoke of, the reason that he was on trial, the reason Jesus had to die was so that we can be sure of these things, that we can know Christ, that we can know his message is clear, that we can know that he died for our sins so that we can be declared not guilty. That's what this is all about. And so let me, let me conclude our time here with, with one promise and one application for us. First, the promise. And it starts with a really difficult truth. As you and I think about Paul's life, we know that we cannot stand up there with him and, him and say, we are guiltless. We have a completely clear conscience. Some of us know that because we see how tremendously high God's standard is. We know God's law, the Ten Commandments, the call to love uh, or to do for others what we would have them do for us, to love our enemies, and so on. We know that there's no way we're reaching that high when we're really honest with ourselves. Moreover, some of us see how, how, how uh, we see with clarity how tremendously selfish and wicked and defiled our hearts are. 
We see what's inside. We, we shudder at the, the dark motivations and the improper thoughts, the things that we know we shouldn't think or say or do, but we do them anyway. And they, we know that there's no way that we could stand before God, stand before his judgment and say, God, I'm guiltless. I'm completely innocent. Let me in. Let's be friends. And so here's the promise. Here's the promise. The hope of the Christian, dear friends, is that, is that God saw our insurmountable brokenness. He saw that none of us could stand before God with a clear conscience. And that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, into this world to pay the penalty we deserved on account of all that. And then we are now fully accepted by Christ's sacrificial death on a Roman cross for our sin. He paid what we could not, and he gave us what we don't deserve. In doing so, you and I no longer stand condemned before God. No. Every person who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus, who believes this message that that was delivered through the Apostle Paul, we, before God, are declared not guilty. It's a, it's a wonderful promise. It's the reason we worship. It's the reason we gather together on Sunday mornings. It's, it's why we, we open God's word week after week to learn about Jesus and his messengers like Paul. It's the reason we celebrate communion, which we'll be doing here in just a moment. And so with that wonderful promise in mind, that incredible opportunity available to everyone, whether you're here in person this morning, whether you're joining us on Zoom, whether you're listening to this message A thousand years from now, it's available to you freely because Christ paid it all. But I want to to challenge those of us here who call upon the name of Christ, who identify as Christians. I want to challenge us with this one application, though it's a big one. Keep a clear conscience. Keep a clear conscience. It is true, friends, that Jesus died for my sins and yours. He did, just as he did for Paul's. But friends, that doesn't mean that we're now free to live however we want. If Paul had stood up uh, up front in that court and said, I have a clear conscience, but he clearly did not, his message would have stopped right there. Why should we trust this guy? Why should Theophilus trust him? Why should Caesar listen to him? Why should Lysias or Claudius Lysias listen to him? Why should the Jews believe him? All of it would have been shut down. And so Christians aren't free to just live however you want and say, ha, it's okay. I got to get out of hell free card. No, we, we, are, we are freed from the guilt and the condemnation and the penalty that we deserve. But we are called to now live holy lives, to be God's messengers in purity. And so uh, here, uh, I, want, I want to read a, a, a quote for you here. Some of you who have been in the leadership book discussion this summer uh, we'll recognize this quote. We just read it a couple weeks ago. This is from A.W. Tozer. And he says this. No one whose senses have been exercised to know good and evil, but must grieve over the sight of zealous souls seeking to be filled with the Holy Spirit while they are yet living in a state of moral carelessness or borderline sin. Such a thing is a moral contradiction. Whoever would be filled and indwelt by the Spirit should first judge his life for any hidden iniquities. He should courageously 
expel from his heart everything that is out of accord with the character of God as revealed by the Holy Scriptures. End quote. Grace Fellowship Church, keep a clear conscience. Work toward it. Pray for it. Ask for help where you lack it. Strive earnestly to be able to hear those life-giving, world-changing words. Not guilty. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for this message, this reminder of how you used a guiltless man to spread your message and how his message is of a guiltless man, the greatest of all men, who is God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, who died for our sins. Paul is bringing that message to Rome. God, we are eager to see exactly how he gets there and all the things you'll teach us between now and then. But we are likewise grateful that when he got to Rome, that message continued to spread. And we are sitting here today on account of it. God, we, we, I, I pray right now for anyone listening to these words, hearing this account, who don't know Jesus as their Savior. They are not guiltless. They do not have the blood of Christ covering them, and they stand guilty before you. God, would you rescue them? Would they cry out to be accepted by Jesus and to have their sins covered and to be guiltless before you? And God, for those of us here who have already done that, I pray that you would so so permit us to grow in purity, in holiness, in guiltlessness. Help us to live holy lives. As we celebrate communion, God, we remember this now in Jesus' name. Amen.